Rick, how's it going, man? How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jimmy. How about yourself? Doing great. You know, it's it's hot here in New York today, the day we're recording. So just trying to stay alive, but I'm feeling good. I'm excited to talk to you, though. That's for sure. Well, yeah, down here in Southeast Ohio, we've got uh, weather heat advisories with 108 heat index tomorrow, 102 today. So I feel you when it comes to the heat. Well, stay inside if you can. Drink lots of water. But today, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about you. We're going to go back. I know you've been doing this for 40 years, and I want to start at the beginning. This is not a mission show? This is, it could be. I mean, who knows? You never know how this goes. <laughs> right. So talk to me a little bit, like before you started your first business, and I don't even know, you had a lot of businesses, so I don't know which one started when, but before you started your first one, what was like, what were you doing? Can you paint a picture for me? I've been a business automation evangelist and participant all my adult career life. And uh, because it does span 40 years, I mean, in the beginning, Sounds like a biblical story, but in the beginning, I was a damn fine typewriter repairman. Wow. I was born and raised in Michigan, and in Michigan, when you talk about business, it's automotive. I had uh, all of the General Motors plants in Michigan under maintenance contracts for their typewriters, and I was making a good monthly recurring revenue as a result of that. So recurring revenue has always been something that I was attracted to most of my business on it whenever I could. But then, you know, back then, sooner or later, the IBM Selectric goes in the dumpster and they get replaced by electronic word processors and then computers. Well, take me back a little further. How did you get your first typewriter management contract? Like, were you installing them? Did you sell them to them? Like, how did you go from, you know, say high school age kid to nice contract with one of the biggest car manufacturers in the history of the world, if not the biggest. Yeah. I happened to have scored very high on a couple of MEEP tests, I think is what they were called. And I scored top 1% in the nation in mechanical reasoning and reading comprehension. So the mechanical reasoning part of it was leveraged or came into play when it had to do with these typewriters. They were all mechanical components with 10 thousandths tolerance between them. And the goal was to get that little round selectric ball to make all these different twists and turns and tilts so that it hit the platen, the rubber thing, exactly the right moment. So that's why typewriters for me made sense and I was good at it. And the other thing was I could type 110 words a minute on an IBM Selectric typewriter, which is about the speed of an executive secretary back then. And why that's important is the executive secretaries would use the machines. And if it was out of adjustment, it would throw a wrong character. So she might pick a P and it would throw a Q or something along those lines. So the typical typewriter repairman who couldn't type as fast as her couldn't get the machine to repeat that problem because all they would type was gibberish. And so you could never tell when the wrong character was being thrown. Whereas I could do that and I became very popular in their world. And then word of mouth actually um, traveled through the purchasing department. And that's how I grew the General Motors contracts. But 
uh, I actually was working for a an office equipment company. I was flown out to, I think it was Worcester, Massachusetts, or Paramus, New Jersey, someplace out on the East Coast there. And I went to Sperry Remington, IBM's electric typewriter school, and graduated from there. My first job, you know, was more or less no background, but having the uh, courage to answer ads that I thought I could do the work and then being tested, you know, right then and there with certain things. And of course, then my mechanical reasoning took over and I excelled at these tests and, and then they placed me in that position and I just expanded upon it. The reading comprehension piece has always been a, a real big bonus for me because I'm the type of guy that you can give a manual to and he'll read the manual and understand immediately the content and then be able to apply it. And so when you put the two together, I could read a manual on how to fix something and go sit down at it and then fix it. And so I always fix my own cars and all that kind of stuff. That was how I got to those GM contracts, or I should say that's how I got to be capable of those GM contracts. The acquisition of those contracts was cold calling, having the courage to pick up the phone and call anybody and everybody finally run across a buyer who was willing to have lunch with me, meet with me, what have you. There were failures there where purchasing people would gracious enough to have an audience with me, but they wouldn't give me any business. And then over time, when they found that I wasn't a one hit wonder or I was going to be around for a while, then they started letting contracts and it just grew and grew and grew. That's, that's how we got to that point. Wow. So you cold called your way into GM. You were the, the bones holding their entire business together because if the executive secretaries couldn't type, the reports couldn't go out. Yep. The manufacturing lines would come to a halt, I imagine, and they'd be like, we need Rick. Get him in here. But no, it, it goes to show on like, like you wouldn't think, right? The typewriter repairman, right, becomes such a crucial part of business at that time and you know i can obviously see that you didn't continue doing typewriter repairs for the next 40 years only because technology has obviously evolved since then but talk to me like when did you sense things were changing and it was time to jump into word processors and computers and it and everything else like how how yeah you must have seen i mean you've seen this change happen over and over again these life cycles of technology and it seems like you've been on the forefront of everything Exactly. I have seen every evolution of the industry. At that time, it was just the fact that uh, the IBM Selectric typewriters were actually getting thrown in the dumpster, you know, and uh, orders were coming across for electronic word processors. Back then, an electronic word processor just meant that you could type a page into memory and then reprint it. That was how minuscule the automation had become. And then over time, the addition of more memory, you know, expanded its capability until it got to the point where they were many computers, so to speak, but no capability of sharing because they didn't have an output floppy disk or anything like that. Uh, then WordPerfect and Excel came out on the proprietary equipment produced by IBM and Compaq and then, of course, they were replaced by the computers, and still there were no networks. There was no Internet. And so the term sneaker net 
came about because that's how you were transferring data from one person to another. We went on like that in those days that because it was so proprietary, the uh, ability to own an IBM or a compact dealership was hard to come by, you know, and literally it was like having a Ford dealership or a GM dealership or a Chrysler dealership, any other dealership. There was an expense, you know, of $125,000 to own a medallion. And then you had only big stores who could own them. Like back in the day, it was Inacomp, MicroAge, Computerland, and a few others. And uh, they were able to retain that uh, high margin sales capability and money-making capability because it was a limited audience. You could only buy them at so many places, right? Apple, of course, came onto the scene later on. But then... The I don't know if it was the IEEE or whatever the alliance was that caused that back up a little bit. In those days, IBM had the proprietary microchannel architecture, board architecture. Compaq at the time, I think, was running on ESA. Uh, everything was ESA. The two of them got together at the influence of a third-party body, and I think it was IEEE, to talk about standardization in terms of the architecture of the main boards. So it was possible then to swap a board from an IBM to a Compaq and so on. And and uh, I believe the ISA architecture came out at that time and then it was running ISA and EISA. But uh, prior to that, you know, there was this proprietary world where no third parties existed because you really couldn't even buy parts for these things unless it was through the proper channels. There was no gray market. There was no third-party boards. Then they started to build third-party boards and so on. And That was how I got into the IBM, or not the IBM, the, the computer industry per se. I had to make a decision, really, to go from the what I'll call analog business automation to the digital communication at the time, I was just starting a family. I had to look at, here's grandpa and here's dad, carpentry. Love it. Still to this day, woodworking is my relaxation uh, hobby, if you will. And uh, was it going to be this new technology that you know, could either be a bust or a boon, or was it going back into the carpentry trade? And I chose the computer trade and that decision has never been regretted. That was the fork in the road. So at this time, it was still just you. You didn't have like a team of people? Well, at this time that I just described, I was still working for that office equipment company. And so there were other technicians in the business, but none with the skill set or depth of knowledge in the computer aspects. They were taking care of the analog stuff still, the typewriters, the copiers, the shredders, you know, that kind of stuff. I spawned for them the computer business. And then soon after, right about the time that the standardization on the ISA architecture came out and IBM clones started to appear on the horizon, that's when I left that organization and spun up my first uh, retail store that was called Productive Computer. And uh, we built custom-built computers before Dell existed, and we bought 
cases and motherboards and video cards and assembled them to the specs of our customers and sold them with 30% margins. Fast forward to about 1997, Dell comes onto the landscape and they may have been on the landscape for a couple of years prior to 1997, but hadn't made an impact because they were selling strictly through their Dell catalog and not many people were trusting of a non-IBM or compact computer company. There were just too many of them coming onto the landscape and busting. But uh, about that time, they had gained a stronghold as an alternative to the big players. And they were at about a 7% margin. They knocked our 30 down to seven. So at that point, I actually sold off my retail store. Actually, one of my clients was Black & Decker Corporation. And I went to work for Black & Decker Corporation as their IT director for two years. But, you know. I could keep blabbing away here. <laughs> so, okay. So you had the hardware business, original OG, like selling hardware, building computers for people, late 80s, early 90s, all through the 90s. And then Dell kind of comes in and the personal computer that comes in a box and is readily available starts to be the norm and the margins are shrinking. And, uh, you know, it's time for another change. So get back into IT, right? And then, you know, I guess we're around 2000-ish, right? The millennia, the world's going to end, right? Um, all the computers are going to go to zero, something like that. Oh, yeah. That was a fun time. But, you know, prior to that, I, oh, I didn't even mention all the evolution on the land or on the uh, network side. Yeah. Right? From sneaker net, you go to proprietary token ring with IBM. You got ArcNet, where... Each card has to be set to a specific address with dip switches on the board. You got Lantastic. You know, you got the majority of the networks of that day were, if they weren't token ring, they were coaxial. And in Novell was king. Novell owned 85% of the share, market share, uh, before Microsoft was anybody, right? Microsoft came in and won the market through marketing, actually. Their product, Windows NT, was terrible, but they literally went around to every Novell, Novell dealership and said, we'll pay for your people to be uh, trained 100%. We'll bring you business and hand it at your doorstep if you sign with us. And that was the end of the Novell dominance. You know, it took a little while, but yes. And then you start coming up onto the, to the dot-com days, Y2K. We were killing it. We were, you know refreshing whole companies, computers and LANs and switches and routers, anything that had a BIOS. Uh, you had started your managed IT company or your IT company, I guess, you know, what is now called an MSP, whatever it was called back then. Yes. And so how did starting that business go? Like, you know, was it leaving the Black & Decker job or was it working for the bar? And then you're like, I want to go out on my own and do start an IT business. Was it just you in the beginning? I worked for uh, Black & Decker for two years and basically overhauled their entire network and bored myself to death, right? You got to remember, I'm a guy that's used to working on different environments every day, different types of businesses. You know, I don't like for things to just run well and I'm in maintenance mode. That's not me. I'm an entrepreneur. 
So when I left to go to that bar, I became one of three engineering managers, over 50 salespeople, and I would go out and meet with the customer and find out what their existing environment looked like, talk to them about their business pains and develop the solution in its entirety, right down to the part numbers and the proposal format. Then I would go out and close the deal and hand it off to the salesperson. Or actually back then I would staff the entire job myself by picking from the pool of 500 engineers. I did that for a while and uh, word got out about me. A uh, venture capital company back then, uh, FutureLink, FutureLink had bought up all of the largest, oh, and I should say, one of my other engineering certifications was I was an enterprise-level Citrix engineer. Citrix was the really the first form of as-a-service, or back then they called it application service provider, what we now know today as uh, VDI or desktop as a service. And so I was very keenly interested in this you know, thinking and assuming this must be the future. This has got to be where things are going. And of course, that was predicated on the fact that internet connectivity was, you know, very, very slow. Not like today where you've got, you know, potentially gigabit speeds to transfer across. But FutureLink bought up all the Citrix dealerships. Then they came and found me and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse to become their director of engineering, which I did. Three months later, FutureLink went Pop. Wow. They had spent all their money, the VC money, on full data centers with hundreds of Dell servers sitting in the dark, burning warranties, waiting for the subscriptions to come in for Microsoft Office as a service at $400 a month per seat. You can see why that didn't work. Uh, yep. Hindsight is twenty twenty. But, yeah, that job went poof. And I said, okay, I've had enough of somebody else being at the controls of my life. I'm an entrepreneur. I've done this before. I'm going out into the private sector again. And I started up my company that is now CloudTech One, the MSP today. Wow. Okay. So who was your first customer then? Did you have people lined up or was it like, I'm going to make a business plan and, you know, spend a couple months getting everything together and then go to market? One of the things that I've always done well is to make myself visible in the community. So whether it's through the Lions Club uh, or other community organizations, charitable organizations, things of that nature, speaking to associations like the Michigan Association of CPAs or offering my knowledge out there. I had done that all along. So there were some doors I could knock on that weren't cold. Uh, and obviously, you know, I had seen hundreds, if not thousands of prospective clients when I was working for that VAR. I've never been one to go back and call on customers from a previous organization. I think that's unethical. But what I will say is I have no problems or no qualms with that customer without influence seeking you out to say, hey, I'm following you because you know of things you've done for me in the past, please take me on as a client. So that happened a bit. We were off and running and, and making good money and very soon after more money than I had ever made work in W-2. So was not unhappy about it. 
And so what kind of work were you doing back then? Like, when did you start with uh, managed IT service contracts? Was that from the beginning or was that sort of later on? It was only a couple of years of time and materials. So I probably went five years as time and materials before I started thinking about the financial model. And we did real well that way. But what I did notice is that I've always financed my companies out of my pocket. You know, I've never had a, a silver spoon or even a line of credit to work off of, which meant peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, right? Hey, I got a big project. I got nothing. An MSP, to me, meant that I could fill the valleys. Granted, you're chopping off the peaks a little bit too, but I'd rather have that that steady flow for the good of my people from a cash flow perspective. It's, it's nice to be able to pay your bills. So, you know, vendors are happier, all of those things. It just made sense, right? But how to do it, how to price it so that you weren't leaving money on the table so that you weren't asking so much that, you know, you'd lose the lower end of the client prospects, you know, the small businesses wouldn't be able to afford you and took a little while to, to figure it out. We've had customers chasing us, right? So that means you have friendly customers that are also comfortable with and will work with you while you work through that process. You offer them the beta or the proof of concept, if you will, to convert and or give them a discount, you know, if they'll try this plan. And uh, it worked. We were, I would say by 2010, we were MSP if not sooner. And I say 2010 because in 2013, Channel Partners, which is a large media organization in the industry, right? They came to me and asked me if I would be on their advisory board because they were primarily a telecom organization. Their attendees were telecom agents, you know, slinging dial tone and or selling telephony solutions. But, you know, you can only get so many attendees to your show if you're limited to that audience. And they were looking at the MSPs and saying, I think we think this is a group as the two collide, telephony and, and IT, that uh, is going to be a potential attendee for our audience. And of course, all the exhibitors in that world. So I helped them write the content that would draw the attention of the MSPs. I was a speaker at many of their shows. And that was in 2013. I sat on the board until 2018. That's kind of how I'm putting the timing together in my head. I don't ever really sit down and think about this stuff from a storytelling perspective. Uh, and it takes a little bit of thought you know, to pack it all. We're going way back. We're covering a lot of ground here. You were pretty early to the, um, you know, now, like I'd say 2015 to 2018 was like, you know, when everyone started pushing like, hey, move off of time materials, move into, you know, managed services contract, all that stuff. So you're, you know, years ahead on all of that. Do you think it's a lot of it comes from your background, how you've had recurring revenue in the beginning, like from your typewriter days? Well, absolutely. In my mind, you know, the desire to have that business model was always a preference for me. So, you know, when it's being explained how to convert from a time and materials to an MSP under an IT business format, it was very quickly recognized. And we headed that way before everybody else did. And I think that's why 
channel partners, you know, sought us out and the content came easily because we had already experienced it for several years before they started touting the contact or the, uh, the content and having sessions uh, and attracting attendees, you know, by telling them, come learn from us how to get to this uh, new business model. What's life like today? Like, how's the past couple of years been from switching to the MSP model and being early in it and, you know, helping pioneer the industry and working with channel partners? Like, what's, you know, the more recent years been? I'm sure things changed a lot during COVID or maybe they didn't. But talk to me a little bit about, you know, today. Well, I mean, in between 2018, when I left the advisory board and today, 2018, I did a very, very important analysis of the whole supply chain. And what I noticed that even though we're a technological industry, our supply chain was hardly at all digital. And when I say that, I'm talking about, you know, all of the, even the telephony vendors and the IT vendors, right? I won't use names, but if you wanted a quote from one of the top telephony carriers in the world, you would submit what they call the configurator, which was a macro embedded Excel spreadsheet that you've filled out and submitted to them. And then they would take that and they would pre-qualify it and set you back a price in an Excel spreadsheet. I'm like, that's not digital transformation. And so what I recognized, like I said, is that the industry was analog, even though it was technical, we weren't practicing what we preached. That's short and simple, right? So I built a, uh, a new company called uh, XS1, and XS1 is a national distribution company, a boutique distribution company. It's not, you know, in comparison to any of the big boys that are out there, but the thing that we do is that we do everything digitally. So from the vendor to us, the distribution partner, to the sub-agent, to their customer, wherever possible, we're going to automate those steps and make it as efficient and productive as we possibly can with the belief that when you do that, the sub-agent has more time to spend with their customers and with their vendors to bond and create relationships, which is ultimately why people do business with one another. They do business with people they like. So that's what I did. And the Nexus One is still around and it's probably got 50 vendors on its line card and you know, we're growing that business. Before the end of the year, we were about to uh, introduce the last link in the digital supply chain, if you will, and that is a marketplace where configuring, pricing, quoting, procuring, and provisioning can all take place on that platform. And that helps everybody. It helps the vendors. It helps us, the distributors. It helps the sub-agents. And it even helps the end user corporate customer because we'll allow the sub agent to brand that as their own. And then they can turn it to their customers and allow their customers to self procure, which is what's happening today with the exception of those customers are self procuring digitally directly with the manufacturer and cutting out the supply chain, right? The channel, that's what it's called. That affects the commissions of the sub-agents and, you know, the whole thing potentially could collapse if somebody doesn't under intervene and sew that together in such a way that the sub-agents can still be a part of the process. And so we think this is ultra 
important. The other value proposition for the corporate customer is that they can, while they're in there, manage on their own their licenses and scale up, scale down. They can manage their spend because they see it all in one spot. When they get their bills every month, they can reconcile much like a bank account. So, you know, that's something that I've been dreaming of ever since 2018 for XS1, and that's coming to fruition soon. The journey for Cloud Tech One today, it hasn't ended. That's the MSP. It has shrunk as a result of a conscious decision to let it do so through attrition and it not being my primary passion. Three companies is enough, and there's a lot to juggle there. But uh, I keep it around so that I can have my thumb on the pulse of the industry and know how it's affecting the MSPs, and so therefore provide the solutions that are important to the MSPs. That That's where I, you never forget where you come from, right? And then, uh, so X is one is, is doing its thing. It's growing. We're trying to recruit more sub-agents to uh, resell our lines. And then there's actually been one more company that has spun up out from inside of X's one, the uh, referral from my colleagues to startup tech companies. This started about two or three years ago, where, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but 4,500 new tech companies start every month. So you can imagine with all the new technology that they have to apply to business pain solutions, there's some really cool stuff coming up. Chat GPT and AI and blah, blah, blah. So they invent a better mousetrap, but they have no contacts in the industry. They have a need to scale through an indirect sales and distribution model. They don't have any clue how to do that. And so they started coming to me to consult for them as to, you know, build me a channel. How do I do this? Can you introduce me to somebody? Do you know anybody over at this company? And so this company here, Channel Sales Pro, started out of that. It was spun off of X's one so that there was no confusion, but they all play together. Right. So the tech vendors will come into channelsales.pro. We'll build out their channel program until it's sufficient and, and well oiled. We'll put them on the X's one line card. We'll run them through some betas and some campaigns to see how that messaging is working. Once it starts to make a little bit of traction, we actually take those vendors and we hand them off to and or see if our other colleagues, my competitors, are interested in having them on their line card because I'm a firm believer in coopetition. So share the wealth. It helps your client grow. There's just so much to it. And CloudTech One buys from XS1, as you might imagine. So they're all sewed together. That's great. Wow. You really uh, come full circle with everything. I think like one thing I'd like to know is you've seen so many technology cycles through the years. What are the things that you sort of, and you even mentioned it a little bit with like AI, the new tech coming, like what are the signals or history repeating itself that you look for maybe a new opportunity or a new horizon in technology? Is it something that you don't know until you're in the middle of it? Or like, is it not obvious until after? Or is there like, you know, some sense along the way? I noticed you didn't start a crypto company through this, you know, so, right. So like, how did you like, talk to me a little bit about that, I guess. Well, 
having lived through the dot-com bubble, right, and seeing how the promise is not always delivered, AI may be one of those. There will certainly be winners and losers in that space as there is. I don't have any doubt in my mind that AI will continue on. There's a couple other things going on. M&A in the industry where master agencies is what they were called in the telecom industry, you know, and distributors in the IT world. We're now known as a, a totally different acronym. We are now technology solution distributors, TSDs, or technology solution brokers, TSBs. They still haven't come to one. We got two. They're consuming each other, which looks great on paper for their shareholders because their, their revenue is going up, right? But it's happening not out of net new business. It's happening out of acquisition. They're buying books of business. Then they have to go through the thrashing of tying all their systems together, tying all their channel programs together, getting all their agents on the same page, some of which were involved in the culture of the named company that comes out of the other end. The other ones are giving up a culture that they had with another company and having to uh, be assimilated into the main company. And the vendors are telling me that what's happening as a result of that is you end up with a company that, you know, and this is not in all cases, this is not a stereotypical uh, across the board type statement, but more often than not, what's happening is those companies end up being farmers where they once upon a time when they were smaller were hunters. Okay. And what that means to the vendors is they're, they're not getting as many net new opportunities as they once did. And so the, the bigger companies then start losing business to the smaller mid-size white glove experienced hunters, true hunters who are hungry for the business. And so you end up seeing this expansion and then a contraction and you know a change or an alteration in the way things are done. Like anything else, you know, I talk about the automation things that I've dreamed up and I'll be implementing this year. People who are coming into the industry are now younger than they ever were. There are many of us uh, who have been around enough, you know, that they've lost all their hair and any coloration of what's left. And that I don't want to say millennials, but you know what I mean? That age group is coming in. These are people who have had a mouse in their hands since they were two. And so they are hyper digital in their consumption and the way that they do business all the time. They will dream things up that uh, never even occurred to us because we didn't grow up in the same way they grew up either, right? So I expect that the vision I have, and this has happened several times in my life, what will end up happening is eventually somebody will, the wave will crest over the top of me because I don't have deep pockets. You know, I can't throw Microsoft marketing dollars at something to let everybody know that I've got it first before everybody else. But it ultimately will change into this uh, consumption model. The buyer journey, by the way, is, is heading this way. They want to consume digitally, right? They want to just live online. I don't want a knock at the door where the agent reseller says, hey, can I sit down with you and tell you about the different lines of business that I carry? And hopefully you like one of them. And they're well knowledgeable about what they need in business and what's available. And they can consume it digitally 
it'll all come to that and the agent of tomorrow will have a, an iPad. They'll have a tablet with a McDonald's menu on it. You know, what do you want? You want some telephony? I got some telephony here. How about some licensing? You need some Adobe? What are you using for AV? It'll all become commoditized. And then, you know, what will bloom in the future is really what the question is that you've asked. And the cycle at which the change happens today is so fast that it's hard anymore to say. So once upon a time when the internet was just on the horizon and then became a to fruition and we had 33.3k modems and blah 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 you know i made a prediction that at one point in time i told my uh, my then wife that there'll be a single thread of glass going into each house and through it will transfer all of the data necessary to manage its devices and get access to all these things around the world and of course that's what fiber does right so predictions like that have happened the wave cresting over the top of me and before I could accomplish it and become the Edison of my day has happened several times. It'll happen again, but it's all good so long as it improves what it is that we're doing and improves everyone's quality of life. The digital transformation of this industry and others will happen uh, with or without me. Well, great. Those are wise words. I mean, you've seen a lot. You've predicted a lot. You've been through a lot. And uh, still going strong. So, you know, before we wrap up, is there any closing thoughts for our audience? I think your audience is the MSP, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. So if I were giving advice to the MSP operators of today and tomorrow, it would be to, you know, digitize and automate as much as your processes that you can, keeping in mind that customer experience is king, where there's opportunity to be lazy and utilize technology in lieu of personal experience. Choose the personal experience, especially whenever there is a transaction at the or a transaction possible because the customer will bond more obviously with the human. And I'll give you one more technology. I brought, I'm bringing this one to the market this year. I won't use a name, but everybody's into chat GPT and chat bots, AI bots and so on and so forth. And I think they're great but they're also commoditized now and people are tired of them and they're about as obnoxious as uh, robocalls and oftentimes useless as robocalls. So what's coming is the video chat bot, the ability to click on that bot, if you will, and it's not a bot, and a live person with a face-to-face just like this will appear on the screen and say, hi, my name's Jimmy. Uh, It looks to me as though you're at a point where you are collecting information to make a decision about a product like ours, how can I help you? And now you've got a closer instead of a chatbot. And at a cost of $20 per seat, it's a no-brainer. What do you want? You want a chatbot or do you want a person? So digital transformation will happen. And what we'll do with that video bot, by the way, is we'll use AI to determine when the person on the website has reached the intent state. So now they have an intention to move forward. You can tell by the analytics that are being run on it. Now introduce them to the video representative through that unique video bot or video chat mechanism. Call it a widget, right? And uh, the MSPs, like I said, digitize where you can, except for when it comes to engaging the customer. 
The customer wants to do business with you, not your ticketing system, not your remote support system. Those are all just tools. It's the relationship and the tools in between your ears that are most important to them. Well, I think that's a great way to close it. I appreciate your time, Rick, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Have a good day. You too.